Axis Mundi. Axis Mundi. It's 2024, an election year, a year that will no doubt change our lives forever. We at Straight White American Jesus and Axis Mundi Media are more committed than ever to doing pro-democracy work that educates in order to activate. We exist in order to help safeguard democracy from religious nationalisms, extremisms, and rising authoritarianism. But now we need your help. We are launching a Straight White American Jesus and Axis Mundi Media subscriber program. Our goal is to raise enough support so that we can do more in 2024. We have plans to do a weekly show on the ways that Pentecostal and charismatic Christianities are part of the Trump campaign and the American right writ large. We want to make long-form narrative series about militant masculinity. We want to cover progressive communities of faith in conservative spaces in order to show how the places we consider red states are more complex than the media will usually tell you. If you subscribe, you'll get ad-free listening. You'll get access to the 500-episode archive of Straight White American Jesus. You'll get an extra episode every month, two hours, where Dan and I answer questions. What you probably don't know is that behind the scenes, Dan and I have numerous jobs. We do this podcast usually when it's dark, whether in the morning or at night. The subscriber program is going to help us devote more of our attention and perhaps even all of our attention to this podcast. We already publish Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and we're committed to doing that. But we want to do as much as we can in 2024 to help preserve our democracy as fledgling and as fragile as it might be. You can go to axismundi.supercast.com in order to become a subscriber and help us fulfill our mission. The link is in the show notes. We appreciate y'all, and we can't wait to take this journey with you and fight the powers that threaten this republic. Welcome to Straight White American Jesus. My name is Brad Onishi, faculty at the University of San Francisco, here today with my co-host. Dan Miller, professor of religion and social thought at Landmark College. Just started my semester, so I kind of roughly know who I am at this point and what day it is, but uh, it's it's nice to be with you, Brad. Trying to remember uh, students' names, trying to, you know, get everything prepped. And I, I think the thing that surprised me as a teacher when I started teaching full-time 10, 12 years ago was like how tired you are that for after those first couple of sessions, you're just like, oh, I just talked for three hours and I'm going to go put a wet cloth on my head because I am exhausted. Yeah. For me, it's the data entry. Like yeah. people, if, if, if people haven't taken classes in like, I don't know, 10 or 12 years and like, you don't know, like now there's all of this like online stuff. So you get it all set up and it's like every assignment for the semester has to have like the due date and the time and all of that. And I have those students, like the one student that will be like this date over here, this assignment says it's due like April 23rd. Is that supposed to be April 23rd or is it supposed to be April 22nd? And you're like, I, I don't, I don't know, but yeah. So 
<laughs> anyway, that's that's my week. It's like when no. the, it's like when the dentist is like, "Hey, when do you, you what are you doing six months from now on November fourteenth at eight a.m.?" and you look at them like, "You know, Janice, nothing." So let's book yeah. it. And you, re- I guess, and you I really, guess I'm at the dentist. You're that's really saying, doing. yeah. Anyway, all right. Yeah. Um. All right. Before we get going, a uh, couple things. If you want more of this uh, really entertaining banter, and uh, there is a lot more of it, believe me. Uh, we're going to be uh, putting out our first bonus episode next week, uh, and that'll be Dan and I for two hours talking about a lot of things related to Mike Johnson, God's will, uh, asking or excuse me, answering all your questions, all the AMAs that came in, talking and strangely about how Oxford and our experiences there helps us understand Christian nationalists, a uh, lot of good stuff. So sign up to be a uh, premium subscriber and uh, you can get that episode. I'm going to be releasing some bonus content as well on Monday. And plan to do that most Mondays. Uh, so if you haven't subscribed yet, do that. I want to just a couple shout outs, Dan. I went to Minneapolis this weekend, uh, spoke with the humanist group there, which was awesome. want to thank Suzanne and uh, her team. It was a great event. But there were so many swag people there, Dan. So many. Uh, so I want to just shout those people out. Um, Scott, uh, fantastic. Darcy was there. Darcy had been to like a couple of different events. We hugged. It, it was awesome. Uh, Adam brought his partner on a date night, Dan. Partner on a date night to come listen to me talk about Christian nationalism. So that's either a really good partner. I don't know. I don't even know what to say about that, except for I feel sorry for that partner. Um, <laughs> Julie, Diane, Abril, there were so many of you. So, uh, came from Iowa. Abril came from Iowa. So anyway, it was really great. I just want to say we have the coolest community here, and I'm really excited. And if you know, just thank you to everybody who came out. So anyway, it was really neat. And it was, it was minus six degrees and I made it, Dan. So uh, I feel, I feel pretty good about that. Um, All right, let's, let's do it. Today, we're going to talk about Ron DeSantis uh, aborting his campaign. Going to talk about how the men are not all right. And the man camps across the country that are training men to be violent, uh, patriot, warrior, Christian dudes. Going to then talk about the blow it up guy, as Dan and I have been discussing him, uh, and that's uh, from a Politico profile about a guy who says uh, we just need to blow the system up. And Dan and I kind of think there's a lot of good insight there about our current political moment. So uh, a lot of men this week, Dan, a lot of toxic, strange, blow it up little men. Okay, here we go. Ron DeSantis is out. It's over. I was going to say, speaking of like blow it up little men, <laughs> we'll start with Ron DeSantis. Uncle Ron is out. Now, I want to just go through a couple of like, uh, as I as I want to do, I want to go through a little bit of like historical uh, reminiscence here. Uh, I, along with many others, about 17 months ago, was, was kind of not sure. I kind of thought, all right, DeSantis is Trump in terms of policy. You noted many times on this show, DeSantis is to the right of Trump. When it comes to a lot of things, DeSantis trying is out, trying to out Trump Trump. I think I said, I don't know how many times I said that people, if, if they're into like the drinking swage bingo game, like you can go back and listen and see how many times I talked about DeSantis trying to out Trump Trump. Exactly. You, you know, we also talked about how Florida was a laboratory uh, uh, for right wing policies. Uh, he ran on uh, extreme cruelty to trans people. He ran on extreme cruelty to migrants. He ran on book banning. He ran on, uh, he totally dismantled New College, uh, a liberal arts college in Florida that is is renowned. He took on Disney in a culture war. And I, I think 
I'll just be very honest. If you would have asked me 15 months ago, I would have thought, and I said it on the show, DeSantis might have a shot here. Um, he might have a shot to be Trump, but better at governing. And he clearly is not. He clearly has no shot. He clearly is not somebody who's going to be uh, part of this presidential uh, race. And I want to talk about why, not only because uh, it it might shed light into what happened with him and why he was a failure, but why Trump continues to surge and what's at play in our current political moment. So uh, Rick Wilson at The Guardian, Rick Wilson's a longtime Republican voice, uh, somebody who's who's pretty famous on social media these days as the leader or one of the leaders of the Lincoln Project, says this about Ron DeSantis in The Guardian. This guy was politically overpriced stock from the very beginning. He represented diet Trump, but no Trump voter wants the low sugar, low fat, no caffeine version of Trump. They want the real thing. I want to hold on to that. I, I thought I'm not always a big, you know, total fan of Rick Wilson's work, but diet Trump. Okay, why did diet Trump not work? So let's let's put that in our brain. Let's go to the New York Times, Nate Cohn. At the end of 2022, Mr. DeSantis briefly held the promise of uniting the moderate and conservative opposition to Trump around a new set of issues, the coronavirus response and the woke left. Uh, so one of the ideas for DeSantis going back to like the beginning of 2023 or, or the last parts of 2022 was like, look, if I run on extreme uh, coronavirus policies, uh, talk about the vaccine in a certain way, lockdowns, all, and I just demonize the woke left. And that includes the book bans, the Moms for Liberty. That's enough. That's enough. That's what I'm going to run on. Get rid of DEI. Fight the culture war at every turn. Uh, cruelty to trans people in any way I can. Uh, racism doesn't exist. Get rid of the Black Studies curricula, the Black Studies AP curriculum in, in Florida, all of those things. And if you go back to that time, he was ahead of Trump. We we talked about it on the show, Dan. We talked about the ways that DeSantis seemed to be surging. Trump was in legal trouble. Uh, DeSantis was raising way more money than anyone else. There was a lot of billionaires who were happy that it would be DeSantis and not the loudmouth Trump who was always off message and so on and so forth. And what they wanted, and this is now coming from Politico, is Trump plus. Like we can get Trump in terms of policy. But we can get a guy who's like really good at governing. We can get a guy who doesn't veer off message. We can get a guy where there's no Stormy Daniels, where there's no embarrassing things. He doesn't tweet Kavifi and then claim that he meant to. Uh, he doesn't think we can buy Greenland. He doesn't, you know, go on TV and say, should we like shine light inside people's bodies? And maybe that'll cure coronavirus. Like that would be Trump plus. You would get more. But instead, as Rick Wilson said, you got diet Trump. Uh now, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of takes on why DeSantis didn't work. Uh, one of them is simply people did not want the country to become Florida. DeSantis was like, "Hey, let's make America Florida," and it, to some extent, I buy that. Uh, to a very limited extent, he uh, I think overshot the culture wars. I think uh, we're getting to a place where Moms for Liberty is running into major bumps in the road. We're getting to a place where. Uh, people are voting uh, to protect reproductive rights. So a six-week abortion ban is just not something that is all of that popular all over the country. Uh, we can talk about the ways that DeSantis' attempt to make Florida was his, out, his, his reason for failure. There's probably a little bit in there, but come on, we're talking about Iowa. 
We're talking about New Hampshire. We're not talking about Oregon. We're not talking about you know California, New York, Michigan. We're talking about Iowa, and we're talking and, and we're talking. Sorry, we're talking about GOP primaries. We're talking about primaries with those voters. We're not talking about general voters yet. We're not, for the most part, talking about independents. We're typically talking about dyed-in-the-wool Republican voters. You know who who love the the so-called free state of Florida. So the second reason you might give would be, well, he's so awkward. Like, you can't have Trump plus when on the campaign trail in real life, this guy feels like he's just not cut out to be shaking hands in an Iowa diner. He's not cut out to go to the ice cream shop or the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the bar in New Hampshire and just went over the crowd. And we could point to people. And I think a good example might be actually Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush was supposed to be the guy eight years ago. And everyone was like, well, he's got the pedigree. He's a Bush, governor of Florida. He's got the experience. He's smart, blah, blah, blah. He's smarter than his brother. Look out. There's a smarter version. Like it's George W. Bush plus. He, he, he like no Bushisms, no, no truthiness, no none of that. I mean, going back to the Jon Stewart Daily Show days, Dan, the, the, the good old days of, of that show. And, and what happened to Jeb Bush is he just looked awkward on the campaign trail and he just got humiliated on the debate stage by Donald Trump. You remember those debates where Jeb Bush just looked like a guy in glasses? Uh, I say that as a guy who wears glasses. A guy in glasses who had just never met a bully who just didn't know what to say to somebody being mean to him. And he was just sort of like stuck. Like, I don't know how to respond at all to this mean bully on the stage. Well, Ron DeSantis gets out on the campaign trail and the amount of memes and videos and clips and Twitter shares of Ron DeSantis just not knowing how to interact with humans, it, it's immense. So, all right. I mean, I, I'm happy, Dan, if you uh, to get your thoughts, but I, I think that's a little bit of it. You got to connect. But I think reducing it just to social awkwardness is a little bit to miss the bigger picture. And, and here's where I'm going to throw you my idea and then I'll, I'll turn it over. Jeff Charlotte talks about in the undertow uh, in his his recent book, and he talked about when I interviewed him on this show, that fascism is about a certain aesthetic and a certain eroticism. That fascism and strongman leaders and autocrats, and I know that we need to pull those all apart, but just hang with me, that when you want to be the guy who is the one strongman leader, or if you want to be a fascist, uh, strong man. There's an aesthetic that goes with it. And that aesthetic, we can all conjure. We can think of Mussolini. We can think of Bolsonaro. We can think of Putin. We can think of Trump. But they all are able to make it all, whether on TV, on a debate stage, whether in a, in a press briefing, to make it look a certain way, to carry off a certain demeanor. And DeSantis, the longer it went, it was like, he can't do it. If you watch that debate with him and Newsom, like, I know if Trump was there, he would not have given coherent answers, but he would have done a lot more like yelling and pounding and all kinds of tantrums to, to not look weak the way that, that DeSantis did. Now, don't get me wrong. Tantrums and yelling are weak, are signs of weakness, but to many, they, they wouldn't have been. I, I'll throw another in there and then I'll, I'll, I'll give up the mic is... And, and just forgive these words. Some of you are going to hear these words and never forgive me, including Dan Miller. Just, just, I'm sorry I have to say them. Please don't aggregate them and like put them on a loop on the internet somewhere or something. I'm just warning everyone right now. Okay. But I'm going to say some words 
that I will regret immediately saying, and then we will discuss. There is no eroticism <laughs> to Ron DeSantis. <laughs> and here's what I mean. And I'm, I am trying to be sort of analytically serious here. I just want the t-shirt. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. Brad Onishi's face and like... Quote, a quote yep. bubble. Yep. What Jeff Charlotte, I think, does really well in the undertow when, when he's painting the pictures of the Trump rallies or the biker gangs or whatever is there is a way that that movement, that MAGA movement, that going to a Trump rally, it instills a sense of desire, a sense of lust. Like your blood is pumping, your heart is moving. You feel warm, you feel energized. In, in religious studies, we would call this collective effervescence, a la Emile Durkheim. You feel it. Like it is coursing through you. And Trump makes people want to do all kinds of things. He makes them want to cheer and yell and grunt. He also makes them want to hurt and hit and destroy. But he makes you feel it. And that's part of that strong man aesthetic is you have to go into that rally of 30,000 people in Iowa or in, in Georgia or in Nebraska, and you got to make them all feel it like a good preacher would, right? Like a good, like a good uh, showman would. And that's what Trump's always been able to do. It's not that he's smarter than DeSantis. It's not that his policies are all that different than DeSantis. It's, it's just that, and we're going to get to this at the end of the show today, but if you're a Trump supporter, you feel like, he makes you uh, full of a kind of erotic sense of desire for this gross vision of the country that he gives you. And one of the things he does is he promises to hurt the people you want to hurt, and you kind of believe that he's going to do it. I, I just think by the end, when DeSantis got anywhere, nobody felt anything. And that was a big problem. So what do you think? I think I think that analysis is right. And I think if we circle back around and tie it up with some of these other things, because I, I said forever he was out trumping Trump. The weird part is, and this was what crippled everybody uh, in the GOP field, is that nobody wanted to critique Trump. Nobody wanted to attack Trump. You had that weird thing where they're like trying to run against him for the GOP nomination, but nobody will criticize him. One of the things DeSantis needed to do if he was going to be Trump plus is he needed to say, I'm going to do better than Trump. Trump was too afraid to, to punish trans people. Trump was too afraid to actually do this. Trump was so caught up in hush money scandals that he was afraid, like he needed to, to do that. That's what he needed to do because it would have done everything it is that you're describing. It's, it's a, another way to describe this, I don't know where I heard this, but I think it's good, is a kind of concept of almost like dark charisma, like a, a really negative charisma that just draws people in, but in that kind of, violent, angry sort of way. It doesn't inspire you to greatness. It doesn't inspire you to go out and do good. It inspires you to to break windows or to yell at your neighbor that you've always wanted to or to say the quiet parts out loud or like whatever. And it's like, so he had the the policy pieces to do that. And everything you said for weeks and months was right. That like, if you could get the nomination, you've got this kind of supercharged MAGA figure who could actually govern and do politics in a way that Trump never could. Um, but he wouldn't ever come out and attack Trump. He wouldn't ever come out. And that, to me, that's what ties a lot of this stuff together. The, the lack of stage presence, for lack of a better term, the awkwardness, the lack of dark charisma, the lack of eroticism, all of that. If he had really come out and said, I am more than Trump, 
Trump is a big deal, but look what I'm doing. And like, you know, if he had done that, I think, I think things could have been different. I mean, that's what he had to do to, to fully out Trump, Trump quietly doing it in policy and bragging about Florida wasn't enough. He had to take on Trump and he had to be nasty because that's what Trump does. And he didn't do that. And a lot of people don't and can't. I don't pretend to understand exactly what it is in the world that makes it so that some people have charisma or dark charisma. People that study that, and it's kind of a mystery to me. But I think I think that's what ties a lot of this together is rewind all the way back. If he had just decided to swing for the fences and instead of thinking, I don't know, I'm going to stand on a debate stage and try to convince people that they should vote for me instead of Trump, but I'm not going to criticize Trump. I think that's what that's what did him in. And I think it's for all of these all these reasons we're talking about, I think all come together there. Yeah, I just one more comment on this. And I think I think I agree with what you say there. And I think it's it's one of those things, too, where if you think about the style of leadership uh, and I don't think this is a good thing, I think this is a terrible thing. But uh, I think back to Barack Obama. OK, and l- let's just. Let's just comp- let's just do a weird thing today. I've already said there's no eroticism in Ron DeSantis, so we might as well just get weird. I don't know. Let's compare like Bill Clinton to to, to Barack Obama. Like if you put those two guys on the on a on the campaign trail, like take take Barack Obama and drop him in Iowa trying to get elected, and, and then take Bill Clinton. I think Bill Clinton has like a thousand times more energy to go out there and like shake hands, kiss babies. I think it like makes Bill Clinton feel good. I think Bill Clinton loves it when there are cameras and people watching Bill Clinton. I think he loves that. And I think that was part of Bill Clinton's charm. So so how does Barack Obama become president twice? I don't think he's actually that like interested in that kind of just nonstop attention on him. But I think he was really good at it in terms of just being kind to people and making them feel like he cared about them. And then when he got up and spoke to you on stage, you felt it. So Barack Obama, I don't think, wants people staring at him at the Iowa diner. But I do think when Barack Obama gets on the stage, he does want you li- like he's that professor who believes he really has something to say. And he he's good at it. Here's my point. You can get elected as Barack Obama with a Democratic coalition who doesn't want an autocratic strongman with that kind of charisma. But if you want the MAGA vote, if you want the like you want to be Trump plus not diet Trump. Your style can't be anything like Obama or minus Barack Obama in terms of that kind of it's got to be as it's got to be that huckster, nonstop, self-promoting bloodlust, make you want to hurt people, get in here and just, you know, darken your desires guy in ways that Trump couldn't be. I mean, and you said it, he was never willing to out Trump Trump. Um, I almost wonder if like you merged the absolute disgusting self-promotion of Vivek Ramaswamy with the whatever Ron DeSantis is, you might get somebody who could have ever challenged Trump on Trump's terms, but nonetheless, it, it really doesn't matter. So, all right. Any, anything else before we, we, we jump and we go to uh, uh, some other fascinating stories about men training camps, which is going to... There's no eroticism in Ron DeSantis and we're going to men training camps. Uh, today is just not... It's a whole thing, Dan. It's February. We're getting into February. This is what happens in February. <laughs> on that on that note, <laughs> all, all I was going to say is, you know, if looking back on it, it, it is, I don't know, ironic that, of course, I think they just strategically speaking, the DeSantis campaign had it exactly backwards, right? This yeah. notion that they could sneak into the primaries and somehow beat Trump by not attacking Trump. And I think that that was, that was what undermined him. And um, 
I continue to think it's, I don't know, strange that people somehow, even other GOP people think that they're going to get Trump on policy yeah, or principle or something. It's just, it's it blows my mind that people are still misreading him in that way. Well, and it, it's like you and I, we know church. Like what churches draw people... It, does does having the best theologian bring like thousands to your church or does having the preacher who's really good at what being a showman making you feel it the whole thing the whole aesthetic the whole look the cool kid church the whatever church all right let's take a break come back and talk about man camp oh man talk about a segue there dan people are dying they're like get this commercial over i cannot wait for that Woo! be right back Dan, do you remember the 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 movies with Billy Crystal and Jack uh, Jack Van Parlance? What's that guy's name? City Slickers, where like you know three middle aged men went to the the old the west apparently, ranch. and <clears throat> you know reconnected with their manhood. Uh, I feel like that's what we're going to talk about now, but in the most worst ever toxic masculine terms. So take it away. Yeah. So we we've talked about these kind of things before. We talked about them specifically in church context. These kind of church team building masculine identity things or you know the the church retreat and where it turns out you're like repelling off of stuff and like shooting guns and crawling under concertina wire and like you know whatever you're kind of preparing for like the invasion or something like that there's a, an article that got us thinking about this this week out of USA today about men paying big money to go to what it described as sort of brutal boot camps but what struck me, and I'm going to circle back around to this, is that this was in a non-religious context. This was more of like just uh, just guys, just guys, not necessarily Christian. I am sure if, you know, our friend Robert Jones or others went and poked around there, there's a lot of Christian identity among these men. But these are not like church groups. These are not church organizations uh, and, and all of that sort of stuff. And, and the context here um, was, I think, it gave evidence of this kind of increasing cultural awareness. It's bleeding its way into more mainstream awareness, pop culture, into a mainstream media outlet like USA Today or something like that, um, about the, the, the awareness of and the presence of, of what it described as all male experiences for men's self-improvement, right, is this, this sense of setting this up as a, a kind of uh, almost therapeutic model of, of helping men to be men of a kind of male self-improvement. Um, and it noted that there are a lot of ways that this happens. And it said some of these kinds of man camps are essentially like, you know, sort of therapy groups. And it's guys kind of sitting around talking about how they feel and things like that. But the focus it had are on the ones that follow the boot camp model. And it's got this kind of uh, illustration of this and, and it, you know, it features one of these uh, in its article. And so this was this was their description okay, from the article. Uh, the name of it is is uh, the organization is the Modern Day Knight Project, K-N-I-G-H-T, of course, like Medieval Warriors, Knights, or just The Project. Of course, you know, we shorten that down. And it said it was billed online as a 75-hour crucible an experience uh, involving involving grueling physical challenges under the instruction of military veterans. Uh, those who make it through also get access to a year-long coaching and mentorship program called the Modern Day Night Mastermind Program. Uh, and it costs $18,000 to attempt. So, so guys are signing on the dotted line, paying $18,000 to go through this like 75-hour boot camp and like crawl up muddy hills and have people full pull them back down and yell at them and spray them with fire hoses and and all this other kind of stuff um 
and if somebody's listening, it's like, what is the context of this? I think it also fits in this broader cultural narrative. And this, this is a real thing. Like lots of people have noted this, um, this kind of phenomenon of male loneliness or isolation. There have been lots of articles and studies about how a lot of male identified people, they don't have a lot of friends. They feel isolated, they feel lonely and so forth. And there is this kind of sense of people reaching out for uh, something, something here. And, uh, Eric Anderson, who's a marriage and family therapist featured in the article, he said this, and I think that this is true. He said, men are seeking out difficult experiences. They're seeking out groups. They're seeking out tribes. They're seeking out some sort of social bonding and sense of social capital. I think all of that's true. I think all of that's a real thing. Lots of social scientists, lots of you know uh, people who work in the mental health fields, uh, in the, the physical health fields have noted this, okay? Um, that's a real issue. The trick is, I think, and this is what stands out, why is this the way that men are reaching to fill that or to fix that? They're not like, I don't know, they're not starting friend groups. They're not uh, going out and doing these other things. Why are they willing to spend $18,000 to have somebody yell at them and berate them and to undergo these physical processes and so so forth? And, and this is what they're being sold. That if you participate in this, this is what's going to fix this. This is what's going to help you find your tribe. You're going to recover your masculinity, whatever. Uh, and um, the way that it, it describes um, the goals, the organization, it states that it's its own goals on the website as being uh, to help men to shatter their self-doubt, to see their purpose clearly, to heal their trauma and uncover what's holding them back, right? Now, again, those are all laudable goals. I'm, I'm all for people, you know, trying to shatter self-doubt and figure out what matters to them, what their purpose is. Uh, I, I am a trauma resolution practitioner with the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery. I'm, I'm, I'm big into people trying to process their trauma, uh, figuring out what's holding them back. But this is the issue for me, and I think it is for you, and in and, and coming back around to this, is like, what does it tell us that this is how that's supposed to happen? that this is what that quote-unquote masculinity is supposed to look like. Why is that the quote-unquote masculine way to address these issues? Does it actually address those real needs? The marriage and family therapist says I, they're getting sold a false bill of goods. It's not clear that this is going to do it. Um, and what does it say about the views of masculinity that, that we sort of even think that it does, that it's going to do that? Another uh, another person noted that the camps promise men that if they adhere to what he calls hardened masculinity, their lives will improve. And, and uh, it talks about efforts at becoming better men and it interviews men. Interview one guy who like, you know, cheated on his partner. And so he's like, I'm here because I want to be a better man, you know, whatever. So so here, here are the issues. Let me tie all this together and be like, here, here are the issues I see. Here are the things that immediately just jump to mind. I want to throw it to you after that. Here are your thoughts on this. But it is not at all clear to me that this is the way you could meet those goals. Like, so, okay, yeah, uh, I'm a I'm a guy and I I, in, I commit an act of infidelity against my partner. I feel terrible about that. I feel bad. I feel like I'm not the good partner I should be. So, so what? I'm, I'm going to learn to figure out maybe I don't know what emotional needs I have that aren't being met or why I did that or how to communicate with. No, I'm going to go climb up a muddy hill and have like other guys yell at me. Like, how's that going to help? Or how is, you know, doing this kind of thing going to help somebody when like, you know, their kid comes out as queer? Like, is, is this is this really what's going to make us into, quote unquote, better men? Um, 
all kinds of visions of the you know problems of this vision of hypermasculinity. It's so heteronormative. It's not even like you know it, it's built into this. How affirming are these people going to be of queer folk? How affirming are they going to be of people who are not like I don't know physically strong? It's ableist. Are you a real man if you can't climb? If you're a if you're in a wheelchair, if you have asthma or whatever, just all of this stuff is baked in. And this is why you called it toxic masculinity. I will call it toxic masculinity. It's so one-dimensional. I think it also can't address and, and actually, I think, reinforces all those links between a certain kind of masculinity and violence, a certain kind of masculinity and, and militancy, uh, all the things that we just talked about a few minutes ago with this kind of notion of dark charisma, that, that, that's, that that's what that feeds on. Um, and I think the other thing that hovers over all of this is what are the connections between religious culture and secular culture here? Because on one hand, like I said, we've talked about this in the Christian context, and I don't, I don't have the full answer here. But I'm curious sometimes. I'm like, so I've shared, uh, I've been reading Kristen Dumais' uh, Jesus and John Wayne book again. I'm teaching it this semester. So it's given me a chance to go back and sort of reread it and, and just continue to, to be impressed with how much she drives home this point that for decades, conservative white Christianity has built this conception of masculinity as, as violent, as powerful, as militant. It's tied in with with support for literal militarism and so forth. That is part of mainstream culture now. That theological vision is out there in the world where people will spend lots and lots of money because that essentialist notion of what it is to be a man is there. But that broader cultural mainstreaming is what also keeps it alive within that religious subculture. And I think this, this is the really interesting thing for me is how much these two cultures merge, and it really becomes a kind of undecidable question of which one comes first, which is the chicken and the egg, and it's, it's largely an irrelevant question. Last point I'll make is when people sometimes ask me, you know, we talk about Christian nationalism, what makes Christian nationalism Christian if people aren't talking about going to church or things like that or, you know, whatever? One of the things is, I think, the shared conception of masculinity, of what it is to be particularly a white, masculine, real man in America the same answer happens inside and outside the church, and I think that that's part of a, a common sort of cultural conception of a kind of Christian hypermasculinity. So lots of other thoughts about that, but I'll, I'll throw it over to you for sort of your thoughts or impressions or reflections or disagreements or anything else on anything I just said. I have a bunch of thoughts, as you might imagine. Uh, <clears throat> so one of them is I want to I do something you didn't do, and I want to talk about your work. So it's been a while since we've talked about your book, Queer Democracy, but you have this really wonderful metaphor that I have talked about on this show a million times. I've talked about it in other places where I, I give lectures and stuff is you have the idea that every society has a vision of its body so that there is a body politic. There's a way that people imagine the American body. So they imagine American body. And, and what we've said on this show so many times, and you you obviously wrote this in your book, is that when so many uh, cis men, when so many straight men, but also so many white Christians, uh, including white Christian men, imagine the American body. They imagine the guy at that boot camp. They imagine the guy who's got, you know, he's he's climbing through the mud. He's wearing athletic shorts, and uh, he has some, you know, some big arms and biceps. And he he talks loud. He grunts. Uh, he takes what he wants. He's straight. He's white. He's 
uh, cisgender and he's an authoritarian dad who doesn't let his kids boss him around or he's the man in charge at home and uh, that kind of stuff. And that's the guy. That's America. That's the American body. And that's the ideal that if you want to be a real American, be that guy. And what we've talked about all the time in this show is that what that what that does for the Christian nationalists is a, is a number of things. But one of the things that it does is that it it really creates, for me, a sense of a drive for purity. And what I mean by that is a drive to make the American body free from things that would not be part of that vision. That that vision does not include that that guy is this big, strong dude with big biceps and uh, athletic shorts and a pickup truck, but he's gay. Or he immigrated uh, from another place, and even though he appears white and passes for white, he's actually, his family history goes back to Venezuela, uh, just just in his lifetime. Or that he's not white, that he's brown and wears a turban. Like, one of the things that happens is that they want to harden the body so that the fluidity, the mixing the uh, the mosaic is not there. Why do I bring that up? I bring that up because I think what that does is it corresponds to the way that men in this country, whether Christian or or not, often turn to a model that says, if I harden myself and if men were just willing to be men and be uh, the kinds of men that uh, are tough and rough, that grunt, that don't take no for an answer, that do instead of ask, then the country would be great again because the body of the country would be strong and 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 pure and it would be without any fluidity or slippage there wouldn't be any leaking or uh ambiguity as as to what that body was and its identity so when i hear about these man camps that's what i hear there's a, there's a book that i've i've read before and i i really learned a lot from uh a lot of people have read it it's called manhood in america a cultural history and in that book, Michael Kimmel, who's written a lot about this, talks about how American men try to gain control over uh, their masculinity by doing a number of things, but one of them is to escape. And he traces this history where, like, if you go back to Teddy Roosevelt, if you go back to the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, many American men entered into, like, very similar programs. And, like, I have pulled up right now a PDF about medieval knighthood uh, camps for teenage boys in the 1910s. Because in the 1910s, there was feeling that too many boys were not doing boy stuff. They were going to school and learning math and learning how to read literature. And uh, they lived in cities, not on farms. They weren't feeding animals or cleaning up slop. They were soft. So how do we do that? Well, we send our boys who might be upper middle class to a camp that is for like becoming a medieval knight in a Christian way. None of this is new. Like Teddy Roosevelt, Dan, was not born Mr. Frontier uh, Adventurer. He was a rich kid from a rich family. And he sort of invented this image of the guy that goes off into the wilderness and, you know, manhandles bears and rides a horse everywhere and doesn't sleep for 36 hours because he's so tough and blah, 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 blah. So I think American men have this very particular form of masculinity, but it does hinge on this sense of uh, wanting to gain control or regain control by becoming hard and getting rid of 
uh, any fluidity, any ambiguity, any slippage. And I'll just say one more thing and then I'll throw it back to you, which is one of the insights that Kimmel points to in Manhood in America is the idea that masculinity, and especially in America, is about performing an identity so that you are not considered weak or effeminate by other men. That most men are worried about not being manly enough for other men, not for women. And when they feel as if they've lost control in their life, they don't have enough money, they don't have enough power, they don't have enough identity, they don't know who they are anymore, they've lost purpose, they resort to, well, if I just get tougher and bigger and harder, if I go out to the wilderness for 18 grand and learn, relearn how to be a real man, if I walk on all fours and practice the like uh, jungle walk and I, you know, uh, go through war games, then I'll feel better about myself because there's no way when I walk out in the world, anyone will ever doubt my manliness, my manhood. I will perform a role that no one will ever think is just me pretending or can claim is not good enough. And I think that's a huge part of American masculinity. I, I remember so clearly, Dan, sitting with a French friend when I lived in France. And I don't know why, I think a friend showed him on social media, like uh, someone they wanted to date. And it was like this American dude with really big muscles and he went to the gym all the time. And my French friend just laughed. And he just was like, Americans are so silly. And I, my friend, who was a woman, was like, you don't want to look like that? He was like, no, why would I want to look like that? I have no interest in that. I don't want to go to the gym three hours a day so that I can perform some sense of body image for other men because I don't care about that. that that's, that's ridiculous. And, you know, we can debate and everyone can call in and tell me why going to the gym is good and bad and whatever. And, you know, you and I can discuss that. My point, though, is it's a performance. And if you feel threatened, sometimes you're like, I'm just going to double down on the performance of being tough, hard, and big, and that'll make me feel like I'm a real person. And I think what you and I have talked about in this show forever is that'll make me feel like a real American. And, and those two all go together. And then, then you add the Christian element, and you're really doing it. Now I'm dad, Christian, husband, tattoo on my right bicep with a, a chain, a big truck outside, I yell at my wife at Target, I tell my kids what to do without listening. I go to the gym in the morning and lift big weights. I drink the creatine shake in the, in, the, in the afternoon. And now I'm a real American. I'm a real godly man. And I'm a real dude. And I feel really good. All right. That was a lot. I apologize. Back to you. I just want to pick up, you know, you, you mentioned this theme um, that's developed about the, the, the role of presence and absence there. The sense of, of retreating to become the real man. I think that that's also a telling point too. Because I mean, let, let's imagine like the the fantasy America that the Make America Great Again category. I was like, man, what is it? It's the dad's out of the house. He works all day. Mom's at home. And what's what's the kind of stereotype? The guy comes home. His wife hands him a cocktail. He heads to the study and like you know he reads his paper. He has his alone time. You know uh, whatever. Or the the most mythic. I feel like the most American kind of mythic image ever you know the kind of old west cowboy hero what does he always do he always like rides off at the end the woman's crying the people that he helped he can't be civilized to be the real man that he is he has to be the loner and the wanderer and whatever and i think that there's this weird i say weird notion because it's it's this notion that to be the real man you also have to maintain this distance and i think you're right it's it's hardening boundaries it's hardening uh borders it's all of that when what's what's really interesting to me is the examples I did, I hunch that I don't know if, if your marriage is falling apart because of infidelity, 
we probably need some presence. Uh, we probably need some listening. We probably need to be in the same space. I don't know how many queer kids or queer folk I have heard who have talked about coming out to their parents and what happened. The parent gets up and walks out of the room because it's just too much for them. And like what the kid wants and needs is somebody to sit and hear them and just listen, just be willing to hear that. So I think, I think that that's another piece of this. That to go back to what are probably really well-meaning men who really, they, they are experiencing all those real things that we talked about. They want to find ways to be better husbands or fathers or whatever. And so what do they do? They like run off and focus on all of this stuff that the people in their lives that probably would like them to be better fathers and better partners and whatever don't need. I think... <laughs> To your image about the the guys in gyms, like another sort of running joke around lots and lots and lots of women that I've ever talked to, like like with dating apps and stuff, are yeah the big gym photos and like fish. It's always the fishing, the big fish, and it's it's these guys who post all of these these pics about you know working out and whatever, and the whole notion about performing a certain kind of masculinity for other men, I think, is right on the surface because there's all this data that shows there are huge numbers of American women who are like, yep. Need not apply. That person is that's that's not now. Obviously, there are people who are attracted to that. Obviously, there are lots of men who try to be better husbands and fathers by being present and by cutting back on work hours and by listening to their kids. All of that's real too. But there is this massive discourse that, as you say, is not new. Uh, and I keep highlighting Kristen's work, but that's one of the things she does so effectively is to show again that this is not new. That it's this kind of repetitive cycle. I think a lot of us think that we've simply moved past this kind of mythic 1950s model of domestic masculinity. That is still the ideal that's put forward in so many ways. Just one or two more thoughts, because I, I think you and I, this is something we care a lot about. And I, I know some people listening are like, hey, you guys aren't like talking about elections or churches right now. You're talking about, you know, manhood, and that's kind of different. But, you know, I think you and I think a lot about this. We both went through purity culture uh, and None of this is, hey, going to the gym is a bad thing. Go to the gym, people. Be healthy. Work out. You know, feel good about yourself. That, that's not what we're saying. Uh, you talked about absence and presence. I think what this model of manhood does is teaches men that the only emotion that they should show is anger. So if you're angry, that's that you're, that's the kind of emotion you can show. Donald Trump shows that all the time. And going back to the eroticism, the bloodlust, he makes you feel as a man the emotion that you're allowed to be in public. You're not allowed to be introspective, vulnerable. You're not allowed to be uh, empathetic. We see all of these Christian uh, leaders and theologians coming out these days saying empathy is a sin, empathy is a temptation. So I think what it teaches you to do is to be present through anger and absent emotionally every, every way else. Like empathy, you talked about listening, you talked about vulnerability, those are not things that you should be present for. And, it, you know, and in that way, it's a cop out. It's like, yeah, I'm going to be on the horizon as the cowboy. I'll come in and be violent when I need to put everything in order. And then I'm going to leave. And I'm not going to be the one who like helps you when you skin to your knee or talks through your you're going through puberty and you have a lot of like stuff happening and you're coming out to your parents as queer as you're coming out as bi. You're coming out in some way. Uh, that's nah, too much. That's too much for me. I'll, I'm going to get up and leave the room. I'm not doing that. Right. That's, a, that's not something I can handle. Uh, so I, I want to make one more point and, and I know we're running out of time today. Historians of sexuality, I think 
make this point over and over, which is white men in America have performed this kind of weird paradox when it comes to the sense of masculinity. Because there's this sense among uh, white men in the 20th century that they had grown soft because they were working in offices, they were working in town, they were not, uh, a lot of them, uh, just by the numbers, were not working in, in jobs that made them feel physical. So the, the response, like I think some of the men in the USA Today article, if you have 18 grand a, to spend, you're probably a day trader or an executive or something. You're not out there, you know, uh, doing uh, physical labor to, to make your money. Um, they think that to be a man, you have to return to the primitive state. Like, like the answer for them is like, go back to being a real man by going back to being what men were when we lived in caves. The reason that's a paradox is because when you hear those same men talk about why people of color, black people, indigenous people are not real human and not real American, it's because they're primitive. It's this weird thing where they're like, well, they have never evolved past as racist. You know, we will say they've never evolved past their primitiveness, their savagery. And so that is why we are better than them. Me, yes, I am going to go back and be primitive and savage, but it's because I evolved in the first place. And now I need to get back to it. And you see what I'm, there's a lot of big lines here, but you can also see in here like white vulnerability and fear about the, the physical prowess and the physical presence of black bodies or of black men or of uh, people of color, uh, being able to overpower them or being stronger than them. There's so, we could talk for the next 28 hours about this, but. I just wanted to get that in there today before we wrap up this just, part. Just one so. thought to tie into that. It's also the same thing where the the white racist discourse about black families for generations has been what? The absence of black men. It's because black men aren't present and so forth. But within this white masculinist notion, what we need is less present. Like we need to withdraw. We need to put you know distance between the family. So again, it's that same kind of double standard that as you're highlighting, just highlights how much this is really an issue of white masculinity in particular. All right. I feel like, Dan, we could go, we could really truly talk about this for hours. We're going to stop. Let's take a break. We'll come back and talk about another man who wants to break things. Surprise, surprise. What a theme we have today. Be right back. All right. Politico, a really, really interesting article by Michael Cruz. And uh, it profiles a man named Ted Johnson in New Hampshire, who is a Trump voter. And I know some of you are like, Brad, we don't need more white men. Trump voter profiles. We have enough. This, this really stood out to me because of what it shows about the psyche of this particular Trump voter. And I think, Dan, why he DeSantis had no chance being Diet Trump, why Haley is not going to come close to challenging Trump, why Trump dominated white evangelical votes in Iowa, and so on and so on. This guy, Ted Johnson, is really interesting. So he is in New Hampshire. He's a, a retired uh, military veteran, served over 20 years in the military. That, that was his career. Uh, he was not in for one tour or five years. He was in there for a full 20. And he says that he wants Donald Trump to be president. Quote, he breaks the system. He exposes the deep state, and it's going to be miserable four years for everybody. For everybody, I said, and that's Michael Cruz, the, the reporter. Everybody. For you, I think his policies are going to be good, but it's going to be hard to watch this happen to our country. He's going to pull it apart. That's how the article begins. So Ted Johnson is basically outlining a vision where he's like, you know, I'm going to vote for Trump because he's going to tear apart the country and it's going to hurt for everybody. And you're like, okay, what? How, 
why? Why is this what you want? And the article goes on to, and I'll summarize because we're going to run out of time. The article goes on to basically show the progression of Johnson's thinking. He at one point is like for some of these very fringe candidates in the Republican primary debate. You know, remember when there was like 78 people on the, the primary stage debating? And then he's for Haley. Okay. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to be, I'm going with Haley. Okay. Because he thought Haley could pull us all back together. And at some point, however, he gets to this place where he's like, you know, I can't vote for Haley because she doesn't seem interested in punishing everyone, holding everybody accountable. That could be Hunter Biden. That could be Joe Biden. That could be anyone else who's committed crimes. He says, I'm a military guy. I'm, it's black and white for me. If you do wrong, you do wrong. And so I got to go with Trump. And if you read the article, Dan, you know what he's saying? Yeah, Haley's got some good ideas, but Trump's the only one who I think is going to hurt people. I think he's the only one that's actually going to punish people. Hunter Biden, sure, that's an easy one. But all the others that have like ruined the country, he's going to punish them. He's going to hurt them. And that's why I'm going to go with him. Yeah, it's going to be bad. He's going to tear the, the place apart. And uh, a lot of people are going to probably suffer. But that's, I, I think, I think, I think the people who I want to suffer suffering is more important than the country prospering or us being united. And I'll just mention one more part of this and I'll throw it to you because we are going to run out of time. And that is by the end of it, the reporter, Michael Cruz, has really cornered Ted Johnson. And he's like, you realize that Trump is being indicted for 91 counts. And and Cruz goes through all the, the court cases, like the fraud case. Oh, well, they just, that was, they they ginned that up. That wasn't, that wasn't real. Um, e. Jean Carroll, okay, whatever. Uh, and then we get to the stolen classified documents case. And Michael Cruz is like, you're a military guy. Doesn't that bother you? And Johnson's answer is basically, yeah, whoever told him that was okay shouldn't have. And he totally takes the accountability and responsibility off of Donald Trump, the, the commander in chief, the ex-president. And he's like, yeah, somebody gave him bad advice. He should not have had those documents in, in classified, those classified documents in his bathroom or whatever. By the end of it, Dan, you get this profile of a man that's like, I'm going to vote for the dude that will hurt people. I want him to hold everyone accountable except for himself. And he's exempt. And I'm okay with that. And I think it is everything packed into what we talk about in this show. If people want to know about white evangelicals, if they want to know why not DeSantis, why not Ted Cruz back in the day? Why not Mike Huckabee back in the day? Why does Donald Trump continue to, it's this, when you go to the rally, he makes you feel like his interest is to hurt those you think need to be hurt. And you know what? And this guy says it out loud. And I'm so grateful he did. Even if it tears the country up, even if it just makes everybody here suffer, I would rather see those people brutalized than have a country that's on its way to healing, on its way to a new form of flourishing, on its way to a new chapter of American peace and, and uh, Pax Americana. It's fascinating and so, so terrifying. What do you think of this article? All the same things you did. A couple things here is number one, it's about the right people suffering. The people who deserve to suffer. This is the purity of the American body. This is punishing or effectively expelling those impure parts, holding them to task. This is populism and nationalism. It's not about everybody being held accountable. And the, the contortions this guy goes through to like exempt Trump, uh, it's everything that goes on in the GOP right now, the so-called party of law and order, unless 
you're a J6 uh, person, unless you are Trump, unless you're anything else, and then that's not accountability. There's a lot of crying from Ted Johnson here for, you know, the poor, ultra-rich white guy who, you know, is, is being persecuted. Um, I think the other thing about this is that this is not about, it just, it just highlights how much these discussions, I talk about this on, it's in the code in a number of ways all the time, like you get in these discussions with people in your life and it just goes in a circle. This article moves in a big, giant circle. It's not about reason. And, and I, I can't delve into it. I know we're out of time, but a, a, an idea I've been playing with based on some stuff I'm reading, and I think folks are going to hear about it in some other contexts coming up, is is sort of the difference between what I would call sort of factual belief, believing in something as a fact, which means that you're also open to counter evidence, things like that, versus believing something creedally as a creed, as an act of faith. It is an act of faith that Trump will do this. And so there is no counter evidence that can be given against this. And it's the same thing if we're talking about conceptions of masculinity or whatever else. And so for this dude, he's going to walk down the path to kind of just just a, a white male nihilistic vision of America that, you know what, if uh, if I can't be sure that we're going to have the right kind of social body, we're going to we're going to blow the whole thing up. We're going to blow it up and we'll build it again. We'll make it look the way that we want it to look. But so, okay, think about what he says about Haley, the woman in this this whole discussion. She's going to unite us too much. I don't think she wants to punish. I mean, he in the article, he's like, I don't think she wants to actually, you know, hold those people accountable and hurt them. So I can't vote for her. I mean, he's basically saying like, and everything we talked about last segment about men thinking that to be a man, you're the kind of guy that does what? You get tough, you get hard, and you're, and you, you're ready to hurt people when it's time. That's a man. So this guy's like, I'm going to I'm going to vote for for the guy, the man that will do that, not the woman who promises to unite us. The the last part of the article, Dan, I think is so. To a T, everything you just said, and I just want to read it and, and, and then we can we can move on. So this guy, Ted Johnson, talks about accountability and holding people accountable for what they've done wrong. So here's the here's the reporter, Michael Cruz. Accountability is accountability, I said. Accountability is accountability, Ted Johnson said. Whether it's Hunter Biden or Donald Trump, Michael Cruz responds. But do I trust the system? I don't. That's Ted Johnson. You're a veteran. You're somebody who doesn't trust the system that in the broadest sense you served, says Michael Cruz, the reporter. I have no trust, says Ted Johnson. The system you served? That's right. I swore an oath. I believed in that oath, says Ted Johnson. When did you stop believing about when Trump became president? So <laughs> there's a dude who serves 20 something years in our military for a system. 2016, what happens? Trump comes on the stage and convinces him that the system is broken. And now when somebody tries to tell him anything about the system, he starts with, well, the system is broken. And then he goes through all these iterations of like, should I vote for Haley? Should I vote for whoever? And he's like, you know, my first idea, my first premise is that the system is broken. So whoever will continue to break the system is the one I'm going to vote for because that's what we need to do. Oh, it's Trump. Then you're like, wait a minute. So how did you come to the realization of your first premise in this argument that the system is broken? Oh, when Trump became president. Like it's the exact circular reasoning you just said it's it's mind-boggling it's there's nothing rational about it but it it is it's all right there on the page and it's a really good example michael cruz politico uh talking about it this week all right what's your reason for hope debated on a few things i'm gonna stick with a theme i had last week 
talking about football and NFL, but something I found hopeful. Another thing that goes on this time of year, you got NFL playoffs. You also have coaches getting fired uh, everywhere. And uh, this year, uh, this this hiring cycle, uh, the NFL just hired four minority head coaches. That's the most that have ever been hired in a single cycle. There are now nine uh, minority head coaches in the NFL, which is is more than there have ever been. It's not good enough. Uh, the NFL has lagged way behind lots of other sports, notably the NBA, uh, in in these kinds of issues. But as somebody who just I love this sport and I have so many issues with this league, um, it's you know we see all of these kinds of things in the news. It was something that I found hopeful and a, a sign of what I think is positive sort of cultural change. I hope someday you are hired by the NFL to be a a, a seminar leader about uh, non-toxic masculinity. That's what I would like to yeah, see. Yeah, that's the on future. the horizon. And that's yeah. going to happen real soon, I'm sure. I'm, I'm going to send some emails. Um, My reason for hope is uh, the humanists. Minnesota, uh, the, the, the gathering I got to attend was so cool. Dan, there was like 150 people there. And one of the things that I thought was really cool is that at the humanist, uh, gathering, which is a, a group of folks who are humanists, meaning they, they don't believe in God. They're not religious. They're secular people. There was somebody there from Christians against Christian nationalism. There was a bunch of Christians there. And what we talked about a lot over dinner and in the social hour and all this stuff was that people we need to build coalitions, whether you are a Christian against Christian nationalists, whether you're a humanist, whether you're an atheist, whether you, whoever you are, whether you're part of a minoritized religious group in this country, if we believe in democracy, if we believe in a multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-religious democracy, then we should all join hands because that's that should be a goal. Just because we differ on, uh, on religion or non-religion should not be... Uh, preventative. So that was so cool. I came away from that gathering so inspired, and that's my reason for hope. All right, friends, uh, as always, uh, thanks for your support. We have a bunch of new supporters, and uh, just can't say how thankful we are. If you have questions about Supercast, about Patreon, please reach out. Uh, I'll get back to you as soon as I can on that. Uh, if you are wanting to support us, please sign up through Supercast in the show notes, not on Patreon, okay? Supercast is where we will be delivering all of our bonus content. So Monday, uh, there will be bonus content coming. If you're a subscriber, I'm going to be talking about Josh Hawley's Christian Nationalist Manifesto he just wrote. Uh, I'm going to read that so you don't have to. Next week, uh, later in the week, I'm going to release our episode together, Dan and I, two hours of bonus content. That's only coming to you if you're a subscriber, and it's coming via Supercast. So if you're a patron, switch over now so you can catch all of that. All right, y'all. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Be back next week with a great interview. It's in the code. And I will say thanks. Thanks for listening. Have a good day. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for listening today, y'all. As a reminder, you can help us keep doing this pro-democracy work by becoming a paid subscriber. Get ad-free listening, access to the 500-episode archive, a premium episode and more. Go sign up now. It only takes a few clicks. www.axismundi.supercast.com. The link is in the show notes. Axis Mundi.